many of you, I assume, will remember the RCA Dome that used to be in downtown Indianapolis. It was originally called the Hoosier Dome when it was built in 1983, and it was the home of the Colts, and it hosted uh, numerous basketball games and other sporting events and conventions. Probably the most notable feature of the dome was its tarp-like roof that was held up by the air pressure inside of that building. How many of you at one point or another maybe were inside of the dome? Yeah, several of us uh, were down there. I I remember the first time I visited, my folks traveled to Indianapolis uh, for a praise gathering, a convention that was happening there. And I remember uh, climbing those concrete steps. We sat way up high in the, the stadium seats there. And I remember being amazed by that roof and wondering what was keeping it from falling down on me uh, and just the massive size of the building itself. It was a fascinating structure, but in 2008, the legacy of the dome came to an end when a company called Controlled Demolition came in and imploded it, leaving nothing more than a pile of rubble. And they set several cameras up to, to capture the implosion some of you maybe watched live as that was happening. I want to show you the view from inside the stadium uh, as the building fell. Check this out. I know there might be some emotion with something like that, but that is just cool. That is, uh, that's pretty impressive. I watched that video over and over this past week, and not because I needed to do more sermon prep. I just thought it was neat to watch it. And uh, if you go on to YouTube, there's several other camera angles. You can see it falling from a lot of different uh, angles. Now, this was called an implosion, and that's what this company does, is they implode buildings. So when you've got a building in the middle of a city and you don't want debris going everywhere, this is how you bring it down so that It's not throwing, uh, like I say, debris all over the place. But in reality, calling this an implosion is not really the correct term. It's a bit of a misnomer because what actually took place was a number of very small explosions. That's what you see at the beginning of the videos. You see those pops around the building. And those explosions are strategically placed on structural connections around the building. And when those connections are destroyed, it's actually gravity that just brings the building down on top of itself. And I want you to think about that image, and I I want you to think about uh, the connection that is there between what happened to the dome and what can happen and what likely has happened either in your life or maybe in the lives around you. See, those structural connections are what gave the dome the integrity to hold over 56,000 people, and there was no fear of it crumbling from the strain of the crowd. But when you take away the integrity of the structure... As you saw, the building just comes crashing down. It can't even support its own weight without the integrity. And in our own lives, integrity is equally important. The things that we choose to be a part of or not to be a part of, the language that we use, even our motives, when we ignore this area of integrity, destruction is sure to come. And it's not usually one huge explosion that brings a person down. Most of the time, there's a history of several smaller events and smaller choices along the way that have eroded integrity. And just like with the dome, we've all seen it happen where friendships are destroyed and marriages collapse and lives are demolished. And worst of all, 
our relationship with God is damaged. Now, this is week five of our series, Profile. And we've been talking about what it means to be a mature disciple of Jesus. And we've been studying the words of Jesus from John fifteen eight that this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And from that passage, we've developed what we're calling the profile of a mature disciple. And it's someone who is following after Jesus, someone who's seeking to glorify God, and someone who is growing in four fundamental areas of fruitfulness, that is identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. And today we're going to look specifically at the fruit of integrity. And I know that we're kind of going out of order, and I want you to know it's not because we thought the Carmel campus had a greater need for uh, this talk on integrity than the Noblesville campus, but rather... Kevin Russell uh, and I are are both taking the messages that we teach today to the other campus next weekend. So if you're a person who likes to move around from campus to campus, stay put next week or you're going to hear the same message twice. But to get into this message on integrity, I want you to think about something that most of us do every single day. As people who live in a modern society, we value cleanliness, don't we? And so as a part of our daily routine, we exchange old clothes for new ones. Now, admittedly, I get way more than just one day out of a pair of jeans. I bet a lot of the guys in this room are the same way. Three, four days, do the sniff check, see if they're still good. And you can get a lot of, a lot of uh, mileage out of a pair of jeans before you have to wash them again. So says me. Uh, there are other articles of clothing that that's a daily change for me, okay? I'm not gonna go, going into great detail on that. Uh, but this practice of taking off the old and putting on the new, it's something that we integrate into our daily life. But it's also something that is highlighted throughout the New Testament. We read about it uh, where Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we are to put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and we're to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul is talking about something here far more important than changing our clothes. He's talking about integrity. And Peter agrees when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that as obedient children, uh, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And this morning, as we use that word integrity, as you hear me say that, what I want you to think of are these words of Paul and of Peter, what they lay out as true righteousness and holiness, this call to be holy. That's what I want you to think of when we talk about integrity. And I want you to understand that anything less than integrity is sin. And we've all been there. Peter talks about the evil desires that we had when we lived in ignorance. And and Paul talks about the old self with its deceitful desires. See, it's sin that marked us before we came to Christ. And it's the reality for every person on planet Earth since Genesis chapter 3. But because of God's love, after we surrender to Christ, sin is no longer what marks us. And I want to pause right here before I go any further and just tell you that I'm a pastor at your church, but I realize that I'm not necessarily your pastor. I love it when I get to come over here and teach, but I don't maybe have the relational connection with many of you that I have with the folks at the Noblesville campus. And so because of that, 
I've been praying all morning that my words would be received with both grace and truth. But I want you to know that is a razor thin line for me this morning. And there again, because you don't know me necessarily. You don't know my heart. So please know the things that I'm saying that today, I don't, I'm not coming in here to beat anybody up. I really am coming with just the heart of a pastor to present the word of God and to talk about some things that we find there. But this is a difficult subject, isn't it? And what what I really want to address this morning is what I've seen become normal for many followers of Christ. And that is to to accept something less than integrity and something less than holiness. You know, we've all heard the invitation, come as you are. And we just sang a song about it a few minutes ago. And certainly that is the invitation of Jesus to those who are far from him. Before you submitted to Jesus as your Lord, uh, or maybe some of you here this morning have not yet submitted to Christ, in that stage of the game, we, we call that chair one. And the call of Christ in chair one is come and see. And it seems like maybe the thing that people get hung up with uh, when they're in chair one is the thought that I've got to clean myself up before I come to Christ. How could he love someone like me coming with all this baggage and all this garbage and all of the things that, that I've been a part of? Why in the world would he want someone like me? Why would he love someone like me? And if you have had those thoughts, or maybe you even thought them today, I want you to hear me clearly that that is a lie from the devil. He is the father of lies. His mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. And he wants nothing more than your destruction. So if you have thought any of those things this morning, I want to hear you clear me. Here, I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus said, come and see. He did not say, get your act together. Clean yourself up and then you can come to me. That is a lie. Jesus simply says, come. But here's an equally damaging lie of the enemy. And it's the thought that we could move from chair one into chair two and accept the call of Jesus to follow me but never deal with the sin in our lives. We just continue on in the same patterns. We keep on lying. We keep on gossiping. We keep on looking at porn and lusting, just like we did before we came to Christ. And so we hear that song, Come As You Are. And if I could just speak very frankly to the followers of Jesus in the room today, some of you have been coming as you are for far too long. And the truth I want you to grasp this morning is that if you have said yes to Jesus, it is time to say no to sin. If you have said yes to Jesus, it's time to say no to sin. You remember maybe in John chapter 8, the account when uh, a woman was caught in adultery and the religious leaders brought her before Jesus. They said they, they caught her in the act and we know for a fact that they were trying to trap Jesus. What we don't know is what really happened leading up to the moment when they brought her. Did this really happen? Did they really catch her in the act? Where's the man? If they caught her, didn't they catch the man? But for whatever reason, reason. They bring her before Jesus. And honestly, we don't have any reason to think that that she was of anything but poor character. Maybe she was, maybe this was her profession. But what we do know is they were trying to trap Jesus and they bring him, bring her before Jesus. And they say, what should we do? The law says that we should stone someone like this. So what do you say we should do Jesus? But Jesus calls their bluff and he, he bends down and he begins writing in the dirt. And he says, you know what? Whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. That's what we'll do. And one by one, from oldest to youngest, and likely from wisest to dumbest, they drop their rocks. 
and they walked away. And Jesus looks up, and they're all gone. And so he stands up, and he says to the woman, Woman, where are all of your accusers? Haven't, they, haven't any of them stayed to, to condemn you? And she says, No one, sir. And he said to her, Then neither do I condemn you. And we see in those words that nothing has changed in the woman's life for Jesus to say that to her. He just accepts her as she is, but he doesn't leave it there. He follows that up by saying, Now go and sin no more. Live differently. Pursue holiness. Live a life of integrity. Sin no more. And I want you to know, I want you to know that if Jesus would say something like that to that woman, then I have to believe he would say the exact same thing to you and to me. He accepts us as we are, but then calls us to go and sin no more. Now, just to be very clear, I am not just talking about trying harder. Okay, I do believe that we are to make efforts toward holiness. We heard that from Second Peter chapter 1 last week, that we are to make every effort. But I am convinced that we cannot do this on our own. That if all we have is our own effort, we will fail. But here's the great part. Jesus has promised us his Holy Spirit to help us in this. In John chapter 16, this is the night that Jesus would be betrayed. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He's having that last meal with them. And he told his disciples that he was going away, but that it was actually better for them that he go away because when he went away, the helper was going to come. The, he actually says the advocate will come. And that word can be translated as friend or counselor or helper. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He said the advocate is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I like the summary that James McDonald had, has of that passage. He says the Holy Spirit will tell us what's wrong what's right, and why it matters. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. His work is to help us remove that old person marked by sin and to help us put on the new person in Christ. So I want to look at how this happens, and I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. If you brought your Bible this morning and turn there with me, if not, there are some Bibles under the seats. If you don't own a Bible, I want you to keep one of those as your own. I love giving away Steve Wallman's Bibles, by the way. But this is likely a passage that will be familiar to some of you. Uh, Later on in the verse, we're going to read the the part that's about the fruit of the Spirit. And I bet if you've been around church for a while, you've heard that. But we're going to start back a little ways in verse 16. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. And he starts by saying this. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Now we're going to pause right there. What does that mean, walk by the Spirit? That seems like kind of a church phrase that we throw around. But do any of us really know what that means? Well, if the Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, then walking by the Spirit is a response to that conviction. He'll show you what's right, he'll show you what's wrong, and he'll show you why it matters. And your response to his insight will either result in walking by the Spirit or grieving him. So let's think about how this maybe plays out in our own lives. Something happens, there's a situation, and there's a choice to be made. Maybe something pops up on your computer screen. And you're tempted by it. And the the reality is we are all tempted. We're all tempted by things around us. But here it is in front of you and you're tempted and you're one click away from sin. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit is screaming, get out of there. Get away from that. So maybe, maybe, you know, you're 
you've got good filters on your computer and that's not really an issue for you. But maybe, maybe for you, it's more of your mouth and, and you're in a heated argument and those words, those, those pre-Jesus words, right? Don't we all have some pre-Jesus words that we like to use? They're right on the tip of your tongue and, and you're ready to destroy that other person. I mean, you get the perfect comeback ready to come out and the spirit tells you, shut your mouth. Just be quiet. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. Bless and do not curse. And in that moment, in front of that computer screen, and in that heated argument, he's convicting you and he's reminding you, this matters. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that whenever we're tempted, he always gives us a way out. But you've got to choose it. And the next move is yours. And so in those situations, if you obey the Spirit's voice and you take that way out, you have just walked by the Spirit. And so here's what we need to remember. Walking by the Spirit involves hearing his voice and then responding in obedience. It involves hearing his voice and responding in obedience. And As I thought about this message uh, over the weekend, I thought, you know what? One thing I would change about that, sermon notes are already printed, but I think I would change the wording to say that it involves listening for his voice. Because, and that may seem like splitting hairs to you, but listening for his voice really kind of puts it on me. I, I believe the spirit is at work convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. But are we always listening for it? I don't, I don't think that we are. And so maybe that matters to you and you can mark that out on your notes and say, walking by the spirit involves listening for his voice and then responding in obedience. There's a guy named Charles Finney. He was a Presbyterian minister in the 1800s. And speaking of this obedience to the spirit, he wrote, if you, wish to, if you wish for him to remain, you must yield to his softest leadings. Watch to learn what he would have you do and yield yourself up to his guidance. Because it's not usually an audible voice that we hear as we're listening for the Spirit. Oftentimes, it's, it's maybe just remembering a passage of Scripture that you've read or, or uh, that you've put to memory. Sometimes it's a stirring in your heart or stirring in your soul and you just know, I can't go there. I'm I'm not supposed to do that. His conviction comes in different ways. But in my experience, yielding to it always makes me more aware of it the next time. It's something that we grow in and it's something that we, we, uh, we learn to hear his voice. We learn what his voice sounds like. And the next time it's easier. And the next time it's easier than that. So Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, He says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. And so this is why I say, if you have said yes to Jesus, it is time to say no to sin because the two are not compatible. Paul goes on to say they're in conflict with each other. Now that word that's translated as conflict in the Greek, it's this word antikamai. And you can see just from the spelling at the beginning there, uh, the word anti. We use that for all kinds of things. But antikamai means to oppose or set against, to be an adversary of. There is no common ground with antikamai, no shared space. And so I want you to think about that, that thought for a moment. And I want you to, to think about the fact that Jesus left his rightful place in heaven, his rightful place of glory with the Father. And he did that to step onto earth and he, he took on the form of a man, and he lived as a man, and he died a, a terrible death on a cross to pay for the sins of humanity, sins that he had not committed, but he did it because he loved us so much, and he didn't want us to be eternally separated from him. And when we surrender our lives to him, his spirit moves into our hearts. So let me ask you, 
How do you think Christ feels about sharing that space in your heart with the very things that he came to destroy? Do you think he's going to be okay with that? I really have a hard time thinking he is. In fact, there's no way he is. The spirit is antikamai to the flesh. Christ is antikamai to sin. They cannot coexist. He will not share space. Now, Paul's about to get real with us in verse 19, and he's going to paint a clear picture for us of what a life without integrity looks like. And like I said, many of us are familiar with the fruits of the spirit. That's coming later. But I call this section of scripture, the fruits of the flesh. Okay, and so let's think about what this might be. He says, beginning in verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Okay, so let's not kid ourselves. Nothing on this list should surprise us. But he says, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, which that word we don't use a lot, but it means excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. He goes on to say, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, Selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and the like. And we know from that phrase and the like that this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, it's not meant to be. But Paul's essentially saying you get the picture. I don't have to go on. But he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul has just presented here really is just a picture of the old self. And all of us, either in the past or possibly in the present, have lived this way. And you may say, well, hold on a second, you know, because I never practiced witchcraft. I was never a part of sexual immorality or whatever it might be because your sin list might look different. But who here has never had a selfish ambition? Did you catch that one on the list? Or, Or who has never felt the pull of jealousy or of envy? Uh, or the reality of some form of impurity in their heart. That's why Paul's quick to note in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what your sin list is. The reality is you've got one, and so do I, and it's what separated us from God. It's what marked you before Christ. But once we submit to Christ, and everything is different because we're not marked by sin anymore. Now we're marked by grace and mercy And we're to live differently. Again, it's off with the old and on with the new. Our new reality is holiness and integrity. And it comes when we walk by the Spirit. Now, when we do that, spiritual fruit will develop in our lives. And Paul's going to go on to list what that fruit is. I want to read this list to you. But while I do that, I want you to do a self-evaluation. And I want you to ask yourself, not are you perfect in these areas, But are you growing in these areas? Can you look at yourself a year ago and say, I've actually made progress in this spiritual fruit. Let's think about that as we read, starting in verse 22, where Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Am I more loving now than I was a year ago? It's joy. Am I more joyful? Peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Am I more faithful now? than I was a year ago, gentleness and self-control. And Paul says, against such things, there is no law. So what does the new self look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. That's what this list is really presenting to us. And that's what the spirit is working toward in us to produce the character and the priorities of Christ. And again, this isn't an exhaustive list. We read another list last week, a very similar list in Second Peter. Different author, but a similar list. Uh, but remember what Peter said. He said, if these qualities are ours and increasing in measure, 
They will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Christ. So it's not enough just to know the right answers. We've got to make effort toward holiness. If we are to become mature disciples of Jesus, then integrity has to be our aim. So I want to share with you three areas where I believe we need to pursue integrity every day and a few, a few verses that you can put to memory and even pray over to help you in these areas. The first area would be simply this, integrity in my thoughts. Integrity in my thoughts. And if you don't know where to start with this fruit of integrity, I want you to start right here because we're going to look at a couple of other areas, but it all begins in our minds and in our thoughts. And if we could just conquer this area of our thought life, I think we would have more than half of the battle won. When I think about integrity in my thoughts, I think of 2 Corinthians 10.5, where it says that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Listen, if you are struggling with integrity in your thoughts, I want you to put this verse to memory and ask the Lord to help you take your thoughts captive, to help you make them obedient to Christ. I think when we think back to Paul's list of the fruits of the flesh, I think the biggest trouble with our thoughts probably falls into two categories there, selfish ambition and sexual immorality. That's probably not exclusive, but I think those are probably the two uh, in our culture that, that rise to the top. So instead of thinking of others, or our thoughts are just of ourselves. You know, how can I get ahead? How can I better myself? How can I rise to the top? Or instead of fleeing from sexual immorality, we actually daydream about it. And we feed that very flesh that we're called to put off and to kill by looking at images and lusting. And it's so easy to do without anyone ever even knowing it. But it's the farthest thing from integrity of thought. And so if that's true of you and you uh, see that, that you have less than integrity in your thought life, ask the Spirit of God to help you in this area. Start listening for His voice and looking for that promised way out of temptation and pray that the Spirit would empower you to take every thought captive. I can tell you that when I first started taking this seriously, I failed a lot. I bet I failed more than I succeeded. But with time and by God's grace, this becomes very natural. And when an impure thought comes into my mind now, I'll sometimes even say out loud, no, no way. I'm not going there. I'm not thinking on that. Jesus, that thought was not from you. It's not glorifying to you. And uh, and I'm done. I'm taking it captive. Because if integrity is our aim, it has to start with our thoughts. But the second area is our words integrity in my words. And we need our hearts to really line up uh, with the heart of David from Psalm 19, where he says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that's a heart of integrity when it comes to our words. I don't want to say anything. I don't want anything to come out of my mouth or pass by my lips that wouldn't be pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. Or how about this one? Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And can I just tell you, my mouth... And my mouth gets me in trouble a lot. Anybody here resonate with that? Like the words are just coming out before you even have the chance to think about what they are. And if that is you, I want to invite you to, to, to read with me, to memorize with me, to pray with me. This verse set a guard over my mouth. You know what, Lord? Actually build a cinder block wall, a, a rebar reinforced cinder block wall in front of my mouth. Because sometimes that's what it takes to slow me down. But if you find that this is an area where you lack integrity... 
And maybe it's, it's something else. It's not just the words that you would blurt out in the moment, but maybe you find yourself struggling with lying, just with being honest with your words, or, or struggling with the use of profanity. Uh, obscenity, coarse joking. There are several other passages that I listed on your notes page uh, about our words. And I want you to take some time this week, if you struggle in this area, to read through those and, and maybe put some of them to memory and, uh, and see that God cares about our words. He wants us to have integrity in the things that come from our lips. The third area would simply be this, and it's integrity in my actions. And having integrity in our actions means that everything we do, we do it for the glory of God. You've probably heard it said, if it can't be done to God's glory, then it doesn't need to be done at all. And I think of passages like Colossians 3.17 that says, Whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's paying attention to what the Spirit is calling you to do in your day, in your moments, and then responding in obedience. It's the way that we go about our work. It's the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way we approach parenting, the way we interact with our spouse, doing all of that to the glory of God. And if you find yourself pursuing your own glory in these areas, ask His Spirit to help you in this to refocus your life on integrity and bringing glory to God. So integrity of our thoughts, integrity of our words, and integrity of our actions. Seeking holiness in these areas will help us to produce the fruit of integrity. So I want to wrap up with with one last thought. And it's the reality that, that you and I both know that there are times when we will not do the right thing. We'll know what it is, we'll see it clearly, and we will go the other way. Because sin is still a struggle to some degree for all of us, follower of Jesus or not. Because on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power and the penalty of sin. But the presence of sin will be a reality for us until we go to heaven or he comes here to get us. That's just going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with. And though we are called to aim for holiness on this earth, we will never be sinless. But we should sin less. So what do we do when we sin? As a follower of Jesus, when the Spirit convicts us of sin in our lives and we recognize, you know what, I've not been walking by the Spirit, I've been going the wrong way, what's our next move? Well, in our pursuit of integrity, there's a skill that every disciple has to learn. If we are to become mature disciples, we must embrace confession. It's the discipline of confession. And I want to finish this morning in the book of 1 John. I want to invite you to turn there with me. And again, just to highlight this passage, underline it, uh, whatever you need to do to be drawn back to it, because this is critical. For followers of Jesus Christ, this is absolutely critical. And I want to read verses 5 through 10, where John begins by saying this. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And I want you to pause right there because John begins by establishing the integrity of God. He says there is no darkness, no sin, there's no evil in him at all. He is pure, he is light, he is integrity. If you want to know what holiness looks like, you look at God and specifically God incarnate in Jesus Christ. But verse 6, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie 
and we do not live out the truth. So this is what we've already talked about, that if we've said yes to Jesus, we have to say no to sin. When we say yes to Jesus and we continue on in patterns of sin, we're living a lie. We're not living in the truth, John says. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have found fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now watch this, verse 8. This is uh, very interesting. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now wait, because verse 6 said, if we sin, then we're not living in truth. But then verse 8 said, if we say we don't sin, we're not living in truth. So which one is it? What's going on here? Well, again, being a Christian doesn't mean that you'll be sinless. But the question is, are you running towards sin or are you running away from it? Is there any area where you've chosen to ignore sin or allowed it to continue in your life? That's what verse 6 is talking about. When it talks about walking in darkness, it's a continual walking in that darkness. But verse 8 is simply recognizing that every follower of Jesus uh, will have moments when, when they will sin. And they'll do the wrong thing or they won't do the right thing. But understand that the true mark of a disciple isn't that they are sinless. The true mark of a disciple is what they do after they sin. Look at verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John says, if we confess to who? Well, certainly it has to start with God. Because all sin is, is first and foremost against God. And I think uh, we read that, you know, in Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin of, of adultery and murder and lying to a nation about it. He comes before God and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And it wasn't that, that David didn't realize that he had committed adultery and murder and had lied to a nation. But in light of what he had done in his relationship to God, those other things just seem very small. You and you alone, Lord, against you have I sinned. It starts with God. But then it's time to consider who else have we sinned against. Did you notice in verse 7 that John says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another? So he brings into account these horizontal relationships that we have. And so maybe for you, it's a friend or a boss or a coworker. Maybe it's your spouse or your kids or your parents. But confession always has a vertical implication between us and God. But then often also there's that, that horizontal implication between us and others. But listen to what John says happens when we confess. And I really don't want you uh, to rush past this because this is the beauty of it. He said that God is faithful and just and will forgive us, but he doesn't stop there. It says, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. When something is purified from all unrighteousness, do you know what you're left with? Integrity, holiness, and you're brought right back to the place where you were when you confessed Christ for the very first time. When 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying is that in confessing Christ and in confessing our sin, we accept the perfect, holy, 
righteous integrity of Christ on our behalf. And when we confess, God is faithful and just, and he forgives us and he purifies us from all unrighteousness. That's what the blood of Christ does for you if you are a follower of Jesus. And some here today are in desperate need of that purification. So I want to ask this morning, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And if not, can today be the day that you are no longer marked by sin? When you take a move towards Christ and accept his invitation to follow me, and by the grace of God, uh, you are washed clean and you are no longer marked by that sin, but rather by grace. You can do that today if that's you. I'd love to talk to you more after the service. I'll be up front here. I'm in no hurry to leave. But maybe uh, the bigger reality for a lot of us here today is that we've already made that confession. We've already confessed Christ as Lord. But maybe for you, it's just time to get serious about sin and about pursuing integrity in your life. And it's time to take off that old self and to put on the new. And so what is it that maybe you need to confess this morning? I want to invite you to bow your head with me right now. And I want to give you some time and some space to consider what it is that Christ may be highlighting in your life and in your heart this morning. What is it in your heart that maybe you've asked Jesus to share space with and to be reminded that, that Christ is antichamai to the flesh. He is opposed and against anything that would be of our sinful nature. He desires purity and holiness and integrity in our hearts. And so is there any area where you need to confess that you have allowed sin, you have ignored sin, there's some pattern in your life. Maybe it's in your thoughts, maybe it's words that you've spoken, maybe it's in your actions. What is it that maybe you have held back from full integrity? Take a moment right now, consider that and bring it to the foot of the cross. suspicion that even as you're doing that and interacting with the Lord, that the enemy is speaking some lies and he's telling you that you've messed up too bad. You've messed up too many times. There's no way that Christ would continue loving someone like you. And I remind you again that that is a lie. Satan is destined for hell and he wants to take as many with him as he possibly can. And so if he right now is telling you that you are too far gone, let me just remind you that what Christ says is that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has called you his own. He has adopted you as his his son or his daughter. And he has called you to sin no more. But there is grace when we sin. There is grace when we fall. When we are serious about these things and we're serious about ridding ourselves of sin, his spirit will come and help us in these things things. And so pray that right now. Pray in that spirit. Pray in that tone. Pray understanding that truth that God loves you. He has not left you. He is just waiting for you to turn to him and thank him for that this morning.
Father, I thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you invite us to come as we are with all of our baggage, all of our hurts, all of our brokenness, that you don't require that we clean ourselves up or get our act together before we come to you. We just come to the cross as we are, and we accept that perfect, spotless sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and it's imparted to us, not because we deserve it, but because of your great love for us. Thank you for that, Father. If there are those here today who need to accept that free gift, Lord, I pray you give them boldness. I pray you would burn in their heart, and I pray that they would not be able to resist your drawing today, that they would move from death to life, that they would no longer be marked by sin, but by grace, Father, and that their pursuit of integrity would begin today. But Father, for my brothers and sisters here this morning who maybe are realizing that there are those patterns and those areas of darkness that they have allowed into their life, Father, convict us by your Spirit today. Make us more like Christ. Father, show us the wrong thing and the right thing and remind us that this matters. We've got to take sin seriously. It costs you everything. And we don't want to joke around about it, Lord. So we thank you that when we confess, you are faithful and just, not only to forgive us, but to purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I desire that in my own heart and I desire it for our church. Father, I pray that you'd be drawing us to repentance now. And even as we confess these things to you, Father, who else? Who else is it that we need to go to today and just confess, God, just lay it all out on the line. I've done the wrong thing. I didn't do the right thing. Will you forgive me? And Father, I pray for graciousness. I pray for a gracious response as we do that, as you highlight these things in our hearts. And I pray that it wouldn't end today, Father, but that this would become a pattern. When we see that sin in our life, Lord, 